Dear Lord, thanks so much for your goodness and thanks for your word. And we pray now that you would uh, just speak to our hearts, guide us by your word. Please drive it deep into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And please have your way with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 24. Today, Lord willing, we read 24, 25. Ezekiel 24, marching through the scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse. After we get to Ezekiel chapter 48, we'll go to 1 Timothy. So Old Testament and New Testament, and that's the role. So Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon. He's in Babylon because he was uh, one of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in, in the Jerusalem being the capital city of the nation of Judah, and he was carried off captive by Babylon in 597 BC. They carried off captives in 605, and then they carried off another group in 597. Sort of two little skirmish conquests, if you will. And uh, finally, in, in 586 BC, the nation of Babylon is going to come and they're going to they're going to once and for all destroy uh, the nation of Judah, uh, the city of Jerusalem. They're going to take uh, the rest of the captives uh, uh, captive back to, um, to Babylon. And we've been talking about all this uh, prophesied judgment that's coming on to Jerusalem and the, the nation of Judah that God has promised the, the judgment is coming because God is warning his children. God's not trying to get mad or he's not, he's not ranting necessarily. He's, um, he's just warning his children that judgment is coming as a result of their sin. And so uh, we see that section, actually today we make it a little bit of a transition because those warnings of judgment go from chapter 1 to chapter 24. And then chapters 25 to 32, God is going to pronounce judgment on several of the nations that were surrounding Judah at the time. And then chapters 33 to 48, the end of the book, God is speaking to the nation of Israel again about future prophecy, future in the time of of Ezekiel, but some of which actually has already happened. And I think we could, you know, if you're bent towards prophecy, it's pretty exciting because much of, uh, a lot of it has already happened. And as you read those, some of those chapters, a lot of it appears like it could happen today. And so a lot of the yet unfinished prophecy could happen at any moment. And we see that again, chapters 33 through 48. So, um, so again, chapters 1 through 24, uh, God's warning of judgment to Judah. Chapters 25 to 32, God's warning of judgment to the Gentile nations of that time. And uh, so we start into the kind of that transition a little bit today. Everybody got the roadmap? Feel like you got a roadmap? Know where you're going? It's important that you know to have the roadmap, you know. Um, that way you know where you're going. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, write down the name of the day, this very day. You think God cares about this day? Which day is it? It's the ninth year, the tenth month, the tenth day. 
And God says, write it down. What day is that? It's the day the king of Babylon started his siege against Jerusalem this very day. Now, we talked about this a little bit before. If you haven't been with us, basically in the ancient world, uh, the typical military strategy was uh, you go and you surround, uh, you know, usually, particularly if it's a walled city, you surround that walled city uh, with all your soldiers, with all your military, and you starve them out. And so this is exactly what uh, the nation of uh, Babylon did to the city of Jerusalem. They surrounded them, and they're going to surround them for about a year and a half until the city is so uh, starved out, the people are so weak that they're basically easy, easy victims. And so after about a year and a half, the Babylonians are going to come into the city, and they're going to basically conquer those people and, and destroy the city. But God wants Ezekiel to write it down that it's that specific day, and God is specific about this day. Interestingly, this day is also referenced specifically in 2 Kings 25.1, in Jeremiah 31, and in Jeremiah 52.4. So this day is, is, is mentioned very specifically four different times, and it's later commemorated as a Jewish uh, fast day. And uh, if you care, raise your hand if you care. Okay, I might not if I were you, but if you care, Warren Wiersbe says uh, it was January 15th, 588 B.C., right? It's very complicated math, and so that's why I reference him, and if he's wrong, he gets the blame. So uh, January 15th, 588 B.C., God says, write that day down. Now, have you ever noticed that in our lives, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but as I was just praying, I really feel like maybe this is something to talk about. Some days we know are big deals right? Christmas Day is a big deal, right? Our anniversaries are a big deal. My birthday is a big deal, right? Father's Day is a big deal. Poetry Night's a big deal, right? There are some days that are big deals that we kind of mark them on the calendar. We may even plan for them. But have you ever noticed in life, some days are such that life can just change in a moment and we may or may not even have the heads up on it. Does that make sense? I was thinking this morning, I was just kind of praying through this, uh, my friend who's a pastor up in Indianapolis, who was our pastor when we were there. One day last, I believe January, he had a stroke. His life changed literally in the middle of the night changed dramatically in ways that I can't even comprehend. I was talking to some other people yesterday about, about him and in ways I just can't even comprehend. Now, we'd call that a negative, but would we? Because God knows the number of our days, right? He's in a new phase of life. He's in a new chapter of life. We might even say he's in a new ministry, right? But there are days that define us, right? And they're not always, you know, we might think of that as a negative. Okay, I get that. But there are other days that something, you know, there are days you, you know, you're walking along the beach and you find a genie lamp, right? You didn't know you were going to do it that day, right? There's days that positive things perhaps, nobody, the genie lamps are fictitious, by the way. But there are days that you might stumble across something or something might happen that's very positive. There are days, the point is, we don't know. 
We don't know. And, and I guess to me, I want to just, if we could, do we live, and I'm talking to me now, do I, did I wake up this morning thinking, this is the day the Lord has made. The Lord might do something cool today. Do we live like that? Should we live like that? Now you say, yeah, but what if he doesn't? Then I'm just disappointed. Well, if the sky wrote, if the sun came up, then he did. And the reality is, he does cool stuff all the time, and we maybe don't recognize it because it's normal, or because we're tired of it, or because we're bored of it, right? But the reality is, we should live with that kind of expectancy that God is God, and yes, some things happen like, you know, challenges, we'll say challenges, I won't say bad things. We'll say challenges. Some things happen abruptly that are challenges. Some things happen abruptly that are things to celebrate. But the reality is God is always God. And each day is a gift from Him. I wish I lived like that all the time. And so I come across a verse like this where God is so specific about a day like this. It's kind of God's reminder maybe to me to talk to me about it, and you guys can listen to me talking to me about it. How's that? But we should live with that kind of expectation. To me, one of the greatest uh, enemies of the victorious Christian life is the mundane routine um, approach that we can sometimes have to life. That we fail to really capture all that God has for us in this life. Because we're either self-focused or we're whining about something or we do have challenges or, or whatever like that. And I think we should live with a certain zest, right? Christians should be defined by the zest, right? And, I mean, we all have different personalities. I get that right? But Christians should have a certain expectation day by day that God is going to do something today. Fair enough? So that's that. Well, so in this case, it's the day the Babylonians come and surround the city. <laughs> we'll call that a challenge, right? And he said, utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord God, put on a pot, set it on and also pour water into it, gather pieces of meat in it, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice cuts. Take the choice of the flock, also pile fuel bones under it, and make it boil well and let the cuts simmer in it. Sounds tasty, doesn't it? Sort of, right? And so this brings us back to a metaphor that he started in chapter 11. Um, we won't go back there, but God basically kind of worked with this you know, boiling pot kind of metaphor in chapter 11. And now he's kind of carrying it on. And the idea is, and we saw this in chapter 11, that, remember I mentioned by this time, there have been two groups of captives carried off to Babylon. And so now you got some, you got some Jews in Jerusalem, and you got some Jews in Babylon, right? And the Jews in Jerusalem 
kind of had a little bit of religious pride, right? Now, try to get your head around this because we never struggle with religious pride. But they had some religious pride, like this is where the temple is. We're doctrinally sound. We've got the scripture. Doesn't matter, we also have idols and we're sacrificing our children to them. But we've got the temple. And those people that have been carried off to Babylon, they're like second-rate Jews. They're like ones that God has judged. And God is basically saying, you know what? Uh, You guys are the ones. You think you're the choice cuts of meat, right? And that was the example that they were using back in chapter 11. They're like, you know, we're the choice. We're the prime rib, right? The fat's already been carried off to, to Babylon. We're the, you know, we're the ribeye. We're the whatever, right? And so God's got, God's kind of carrying this on. Um, these people are not, you know, they think they're the choice cuts, but the reality is, the paradox is, that God is going to preserve that remnant that's in Babylon, and he's going to bring them back after 70 years. They're going to resettle, and from those people, we're going to see the line to the Messiah, and the nation is going to be uh, reestablished. The Messiah is going to come from those people, and it's those people that the people in Jerusalem think are the scraps that are actually going to be um, dealt with more graciously. Verse 6, he goes on, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Woe to the bloody city, those of you who are still in Jerusalem. Woe to the bloody city, to to the pot whose scum is in it, and whose scum is not gone from it. You know, scum is just a, you don't want to be described as scum. You don't want your city to be called scum. You don't want to be called scum. You don't want to be called scum by God, right? That's bad. And whose scum is not gone from it, bring it out piece by piece on which no lot has fallen from her blood and her, for her blood is in her midst. She set it on top of a rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust that it may raise up fury and take vengeance. I have set her blood on top of a rock that it may not be covered. So God's kind of bringing out this picture. You know, there's blood all over the city and blood is not necessarily hidden. Have you noticed this? It's going to be on top of the rock. It's, it's, it's very visible. It's not covered with dust. It's, it's bloody, and, this, and it's kind of a twofold picture that God has given. The city's bloody because of all the bloodshed in the city thus far. The sacrifice of their children, the, the murder of, of one another, just all the sin and destruction and, and uh, just the, the horrible idolatry practice this, that, they, that they took part in brought blood into their city. But there's a second meaning, and that is when the Babylonians come and destroy the city, there's going to be even more blood. And so it's kind of a twofold message that God has given. And he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 9, Woe to the bloody city. I too will make the pyre great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, cook the meat well, mix in the pieces, and let the cuts be burned up. Now, when you, ch- when you cook a good steak or whatever, right, if you're a carnivore, you eat a good steak, right? You cook it, right? The purpose of putting it in the pot or the skillet or whatever is to cook it, to prepare it to be eaten. In this case, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be consumed. And so 
God is kind of turning this metaphor on its head of these people thinking they're so great, and God says, no, you're actually going to be burned up. And so um, it's, it's destruction in reality. And then, verse 11, set the pot empty on the coals, that it may become hot in its, and its bronze may burn, that its filthiness may be melted in it, that its scum may be consumed. And so the pot itself is a picture of the city of Jerusalem. So not only are the people are going to be destroyed, sort of the, you know, the choice cuts of meat, not only are they going to be burned up, but the city itself is going to be burned up. The, 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 the pot itself is going to be burned up and consumed in the fire. And so what do we see? We see Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. There's going to be a remnant that are taken off to Babylon. In 70 years, the Medes and Persians are going to conquer the Babylonians. They're going to have grace and mercy on the Jews. They're going to let them resettle back in Jerusalem, and we're going to start all over. Now, have you ever noticed sometimes in some situations you have to just start all over? And it's a picture that God has given us. It's like Jerusalem is, is God's, you know, that's God's holy city. He's got a heart for that city. But there's so much wickedness in that city, it's like he's got to wipe it out and start over. You know, sometimes, I was telling somebody recently, I forget the analogy, but sometimes, you know, when you remodel a house, sometimes you paint the walls, right? There's some walls you paint. Or some walls, maybe they got mold or whatever, you guys got to tear them down and hang new drywall, right? And so sometimes you can paint, sometimes you got to destroy and then rebuild. And so that's what's going to happen to the, to the city of Jerusalem. So verse 12, he goes on. She has grown weary with lies and her great scum has not gone from her. Let her scum be in the fire. In, her, in your filthiness is lewdness, Because I have cleansed you and you were not cleansed, you will not be cleansed of your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent according to your ways and according to your deeds. They will judge you, says the Lord. So, you know, again, she's grown weary with lies. What are the lies? Again, Warren Wiersbe, I'm, I'm enjoying quoting him on these, in these chapters. Warren Wiersbe says this, The Jerusalem leaders were confident of deliverance because they were depending on a lie. Our God will never allow his chosen people to be killed, his holy city and his temple to be destroyed. This was a delusion. Could it be possible, and I'm just saying, I'm just asking the question. Could it be possible that we're capable today, 2,500 years later, could it be possible that we're capable of putting our trust in religion, even our Christian religion? Could it be possible in putting our trust in, well, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know I grew up in this kind of tradition. I, I, I have this kind of doctrine. I'm a part of this church. And we think that that somehow justifies us, right? And the reality is, the only thing that we can stand on is Jesus Christ. The only thing 
we can stand on is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, If anyone hears these words of mine and does them, he's like a wise man who built his house on a what? A rock. The rains come, the winds blow, storms happen, life gets hard, and that house stands firm. By the way, I just said winds come and rains blow, or rains come and winds blow and storms happen to people that are building their house on the rock. We're not exempt. It's not pie in the sky till we die. We're not exempt from challenges in life. But he said, you know, whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a guy that built his house on the sand. The same rain comes, the same wind blows. There you have it. The house is crumbled, right? Jesus is our rock. This church is not our rock. Having, you know, my granddaddy was a, was a preacher is not our rock. My mama gave me a Bible when I was a kid is not our rock. Whatever your thing is, you know, I tithe is not my rock. And we all have our kind of, we kind of have our thing a little bit. If we're not, if we're honest with ourselves, we all kind of have our thing a little bit. And we need to be reminded to just strip all that away in a sense. I mean, all that's okay, right? But Jesus is our rock. That other stuff is sort of built on the rock. And we've got to be very careful to avoid arrogant religious pride. Because arrogant religious pride makes us delusional. He says here, she has grown weary with lies. These were religious people. Oh, by the way, they were also worshiping idols, but they were religious people. They thought they were good Jews, but they were also worshiping idols. So, be careful about that. He takes us into the next parable. This one's personal to Ezekiel. He says, also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence, make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and your, put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrows. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And the next morning I did as I was commanded. Wow, can you imagine this? Now, we don't know how long Ezekiel was married, but, and we really don't know anything else about his wife. We know that she died suddenly. We notice also, and I think it's fascinating, that we really, you know, what, we have, what, do, we have as a, what do we know about Ezekiel's wife? That she was described as the desire of your eyes. Ladies, is that, would you call that sweet? One of you would. Ladies, would you call that sweet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Guys, would you call that sweet? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The desire of your eyes, right? This is cool. I love this description. It's the desire of his eyes. Now, again, we don't know how long they were married, right? But we know that it would have been, Ezekiel would have been, would have wanted to mourn properly for her death, 
because God tells him not to. In my mind, I picture that they were a team. I may be reading too much into it, but I picture that they were a team because I picture that they'd been married for a while. We'll say long enough to grow tired of each other, as many do. And yet, she is described as the desire of his eyes. And let me just suggest to married people, that's how it should roll. That's how it should roll. Now, does that mean that she was physically attractive? I think it goes way deeper than that. I think it goes way deeper than that. My wife and I have a little tradition. On Friday nights is date night, which is English for everybody else likes to get rid of us on Friday night, right? And, uh, no, that's not true, but anyway. On Friday nights, you know, we'll go out to dinner, we'll do something, or we'll decide, you know, do you want to stay in town or do you want to go out of town? Do you want to, you know, and there's always kind of this decision process, what are we going to do, and, you know, all this. And so anyway, this week, uh, we, uh, we started, we did this once before. Uh, she says, let's go fishing, right? To which you say, what a woman, right? And she says, let's go fishing. So many of you know, we live on a creek. It's a big creek. You know what it's called? Big creek. And uh, there's like a little island out in the middle of it. And uh, so... Uh, she loads up her cast iron skillet and her Ziploc baggie of, of onions and, and peppers and oil and some matches, and I load up the fishing poles, right? You're picturing date night so far, right? Everybody picturing date night? And we climb down. Anyway, we're getting ready to climb down to the, to the, it's kind of a steep climb, and thank God we make it there without falling on our face and, and, and all that. But as we were getting ready to go, She's not, um, she's the desire of my eyes, okay? But she qualifies it before we get ready to leave. You know, she kind of halfway apologizes that, well, we're going to the creek, right? And in order to go fishing, you have to kind of walk through the creek, right? Everybody with me on this? And so she is physically prepared to walk down the hill through the woods, through the creek, sit on a rock, build a fire, bust out her skillet, and cook the fish that she expects me to catch, right? Now, physically, do you think she looked like she does today? She had on her creek outfit. Fair enough? Right? I thought I could do it. And she says something like, do I look okay? <laughs> and I just got done finishing preparing for this, and I thought, you know, Ezekiel's wife 
was the desire of his eyes. I don't know if she was 25 or 85. Scripture doesn't care to tell me that because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. These guys were a team. Husbands and wives today, can I tell you this? If you have the opportunity, I'm going to speak to husbands for a second. Because the burden lies on you, first and foremost. That's just the scriptural order. You can call me old school, you can call me a chauvinist, you can call me all kinds of things. Most of them are true. But the scriptural order is this. The biblical marriage is compared to the husband is likened to Christ and the wife is likened to the church. Now, I'm not a, many of you know, I'm not a hyper-sovereignty guy, but I'm kind of a sovereignty guy. Okay, And in my relationship as a part of the church with Christ, I always ask myself, so who holds this relationship together, me or Christ? Christ. Like, who makes this a healthy relationship? Is it all about me being good or is it about Christ? It's all about Christ. I feel like, and so my job is to respond to his love and his mercy and say, thank you. Yes, I'll serve you forever. Right? But make no mistake about it. This relationship is defined by Christ. Now, again, you call me old school chauvinist, and I'd say, dudes, I'm not talking about you're the head of the house means you get to say cook my eggs no i'm talking about being the head of the house means you bear the weight like christ loved the church you bear the weight big time and i know there's a lot of situations we all have situations right and i know that this is sometimes a painful discussion but we need to have it. We need to have it. Because, frankly, this is a distracting world for a man to live in. It's a distracting world for a man to live in. It's easy for a man to find something that's more fun than a wife who's wearing her creek clothes. Right? That's just honest. Now, let me back up a minute and clarify. My wife looks awesome in her Creek clothes. Right? And I did catch the fish, right? And we took a selfie, me and her and the fish. We did conclude. People our age probably shouldn't take selfies with fish. <laughs> But that's 
because of me, not her. But Ezekiel's told not to mourn for her. It's important to know that mourning is an important part of life as well. Of all the journeys of life, mourning is, a, and is an important thing. I've, I've learned this recently with COVID. Because with COVID, one of the sort of sub-tragedies, if you will, of COVID that doesn't get a lot of press necessarily, is that the grieving process and the burial process and the mourning process has been sort of disrupted. I remember talking to a guy uh, in 2020. His wife got sick in Florida. He had to send her off to a... uh, She was going to go to a a facility, a long-term care facility in, I think, Kentucky. He had to put her on a plane, and that was like the last time she, he saw her. He thought she was going to get better, and then she died. And then he was a pastor. And so then he's the guy that has to do her funeral, but it's COVID, so only nine people can come to the funeral. There was like, it was like so, and he, was, he, he couldn't grieve properly. And so all that to say, Ezekiel, number one take-home point, His wife was the desire of his eyes. Not his fun, not his hobby, certainly not any other woman. But his wife was the desire of his eyes. That's take-home point number number one. Take-home point number two, I think they were a team. I, I really think they were a team. And ladies, I don't need to tell you, you have a you have a role in that. You have a role in that. And then take home point number three, it's like he can't even mourn for her. So th- these are hard things. And then take home point number four, so I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, verse 18, and the next morning I did what? As I was commanded. Take home point number four of this little parable, obedience is not about how difficult it is, obedience is about obedience. Obedience to God has nothing to do with how difficult it is. Obedience to God has to do with obedience to God. And so often, so often, I'll be in a conversation with somebody and they start to explain their disobedience. Have you ever been in one of these conversations? Where somebody's explaining their disobedience and every single time There's a reason for their disobedience, and it's because it's difficult. Well, guess what? Life is difficult. This man was told not to grieve for his wife. Life is difficult. And again, I'm speaking to myself. Obedience has nothing to do with how difficult it is. Obedience has to do with what did God say. can't imagine... I spoke to the people that morning. At evening, my wife died. The next morning, I did as I was commanded. That's, that's incredible. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things signify to us so that you behave, that you behave so? And so again, our actions speak to people much more than our words. And if we're not careful, our actions can invalidate our words. 
If we're not careful, our actions can invalidate, completely nullify our words. We've got to be careful. Then I answered him, verse 29. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast. The Check this out. The desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and your daughters, whom you left behind, shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you, according to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord. So these guys are like, what's this all mean? Your wife dies and you don't mourn. What does that mean? Well, he says this. You know what? Your sanctuary, that is their temple, is your, quote, arrogant boast, and it is the desire of your eyes. Get this? This is what we talked about in the, in the cooking pot parable, right? The sanctuary. We are the holy people. We're God's chosen people. We're the sons of Abraham. We're special. We're privileged. We belong to church. We tithe. We do all this. That is described as, that's their arrogant boast. That's the desire of their eyes. And so we need to ask, what's the desire of our eyes? I mean, if we're, if we're married, it should be our spouse, right? But, there are all, but also the Lord. He's, talking, he's taking this to the, to the Lord level now. And God wants them not to mourn because they brought this destruction on themselves. When the destruction comes, don't mourn because you guys brought it on yourself. Verse 25, and so, and you, son of man, will it not be in the day when I take from them their stronghold, their joy, and their glory, and the desire of their eyes, again, he's now mentioned this repeatedly, and that on which they set their minds, notice that, that on which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, their sons and their daughters. So the day will come when the siege is going to be complete, Jerusalem and the temple, the stronghold, the desire of their eyes is going to be taken. And along the way, notice this, that on which they set their minds is going to be destroyed. Can I pause for a second there? You ever think about this? You can choose what you set your mind on, right? Now, you know, sometimes a thought comes into our head, right? Maybe from an advertisement, right? Wow, that's a beautiful car, right? I bet it's fast. I bet it's got all the bells and whistles. I'll bet people think I'm cool if I'm in that cool car, right? You know, and your brain can kind of entertain that, right? You can choose what you set your mind on. Colossians chapter 2, chapter 3, I'm sorry, says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Romans 12, 2, this is fascinating to me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed, that is all of me, by the renewing of my mind. What does that mean? That means that which I set my mind on defines who I become. And don't we see that play out in life? That which I set my mind on 
that which I obsess over becomes sooner or later who I am. You set your mind on drugs and alcohol, that's who you become. Straight up, right? I mean, that's just reality. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, and not on the world, not on things of earth, that defines us. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. These guys, they set their minds on their arrogant pride of their, of their false religion, of their, of their false worship of God. And on that day, verse 26, one who escapes will come to you to let you hear it with your ears. On that day, your mouth will be open to him who has escaped. You shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus, you'll be assigned to them and they shall know that I am the Lord. So we read back in chapter three, I won't go back there, but God had kind of limited Ezekiel's speech. He said at times God's going to make Ezekiel mute. At times he's going to kind of free up his tongue and when the news of the conquest of the city comes, he's going to speak more freely. And so that's really just, that's the end of the judgment chapters regarding the nation of Judah. God goes in, moves in now towards uh, some chapters specifically about the other nations. And we'll just read these briefly. Chapter 25, as we read this, will be directed to Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Now, if you're, okay, you're looking at me, you're, on a, you're looking at a map. I'll get my east and west backwards because you're looking at me. You got nation of Israel, right, over here. Mediterranean Sea is right here, right? Jordan River borders uh, most of Israel, right? Well, yeah, it borders Israel. And then on the other side, you've got Ammon, Moab, and Edom, north to south. Ammon, Moab, and Edom. So that's three of these nations. And the Philistines were down farther uh, south towards Egypt on the, other, on the other direction. All right. So that's your geometry or geography. Might be geometry too. See, if we do it in a, a certain right angle, yeah, it's geography, right? Wow. That was bad. The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 20, chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into captivity. Indeed, therefore, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east. And they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. And I will make Rabbah, that'd be a, that was the capital of Ammon, a stable for your camels, for camels, and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you clapped your hands, stamped your feet, and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for the land of Israel, Indeed, therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples. I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, speaking of the Ammonites here, Ammon and Moab, if, uh, if you don't know the backstory, uh, this is worth noting, and we'll do it kind of brushstroke. You remember Lot? Abraham had a nephew, Lot. 
Okay. You remember Lot? Abraham had a nephew, Lot? Yeah, yeah that's what I thought. So Abraham had a nephew, Lot. They separate. Long story short, Lot winds up in a city named Sodom. We know that a lot of evil behavior was going on in Sodom. So much so that God brought judgment on Sodom, right? Rained down fire and brimstone. You know the story from Genesis. Lot and his two daughters escaped. And um, it's in Genesis chapter 19 if you want more details. Lot and his two daughters escape. They wind up living in the mountains. The two daughters said, wow, we got no uh, legacy now because, you know, we're not married. And it's just us and dad. And so they both get dad drunk. And next thing you know, they both get pregnant. And one of them bears a son, and his name is Ammon. And the other one bears a son, and his name is Moab. Now, I skipped over a lot of details because it's an ugly story. It's an ugly, ugly, ugly story. And we, as well-bred Christians who tend not to struggle with religious, arrogant pride, we say, Lot is a loser, right? You know I'm setting you up, right? Raise your hand if you know I'm setting you up. You know I'm setting you up. Work with me. You know what I appreciate about you guys is when I set you up, you still nod. So I appreciate that. We would think Lot is a loser, right? We'd say, man, are you serious? That's the legacy you leave? The last thing you're going to leave us with, Lot, first of all, after you compromise, you choose the best land for yourself when Abraham gives you the choice. You're all consumed with yourself. You're selfish, 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 selfish. You go down there in Sodom, there's all kinds of bad stuff there, and, and you're not even a good influence on them. If anything, they're a bad influence on you. And then you escape with your daughters, and then there's that really ugly part of the story. And next thing you know, we got the Ammonites and the Moabites, and every time we look in the face of an Ammonite and a Moabite, all we have to remember is Lot's compromise. Lot, you're a loser, said the arrogant, prideful Christian, right? What does God say about Lot, those of you who knew I was setting you up? 2 Peter chapter, seven, chapter 2, verse 7, describes Lot, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Lot's description in the New Testament, to me, is the... One of the, I mean, uh, short of the life of Jesus, right, dying for, on a cross for my sins, it's one of the greatest pictures of God's grace in the Bible. Because I know the story about Lot and all the ugly details, and I know in Second Peter, when God des- decides to describe Lot, he calls him righteous. Well, there's nothing I read about Lot that I would call righteous, but God calls him righteous right? So it tells me, you know, whenever you see an Ammonite, maybe you ought to cut him a little slack. Because God sees him as a child of God. Whenever you see a Moabite, maybe you ought to say, you know what, Ruth was a Moabite. 
turned out okay for her. Right? And maybe we ought to just recognize our own sin. Right? And be humble about it. And, and then and only then are we able really to have the right perspective as God does. It's a reminder for us to be humble and compassionate even when we're tempted to look down on someone else like Lot. We should see him as God does. And can I tell you this? Can I tell you a word to, be a, to, be, to just make sure you, you define it in the context of God? And that is conviction. Now, I feel like I'm a man of conviction. Should we be people of conviction? Yes. We should be people of conviction. Should we, what does conviction mean? It means I have a firm grasp, in my mind, of right and wrong. Right? Should I lie? No. Is lying right or wrong? Wrong. Well, wait a minute. What about my situation? No. We talked about that with Ezekiel's wife dying, right? Conviction is conviction. But sometimes, as a religious man, I can look down on somebody like Lot and I veil it as my conviction. Does that make sense? So be careful about that. Can I just say be careful about that? We need to be full of conviction and yet full of grace. I think that only happens by a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In reality, probably over time. I know that's how it's worked for me. I've been there. I've been so convicted. I've been so full of conviction at times. I do a lot of damage <laughs> along the way. Let's put it that way. I don't want to be that guy. So, that's the Ammonites. Be careful about looking down on them. And what was the curse of the Ammonites? What, why is God going to judge them? Because they said, aha, they clapped their hands, they stomped their feet, they rejoiced. Woohoo! the Jews are going down. Right? Is there anybody in your life that if they went down, you'd say, woohoo? Be careful. Be careful. If there's anybody in your life that you'd like to see go down, or you'd like to see them get what's theirs. And by the way, if there is anybody like that, do they deserve it? Yeah, maybe. Does that justify it? No. Did the Jews deserve to get destroyed? Absolutely. Were the Ammonites right before God when they said, woohoo! Not at all. And God's going to judge them accordingly. Be very careful about this one. Be very, he gives us a little more detail now. Thus says the Lord God, verse 8, because Moab and Seir say, look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities of cities of its on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth, Jeshemosh, Baal, Meon, and Kirjathim. To the, to the men of the east, I'll give it as a possession together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So just like Ammon, Moab is going to go down. And part of the reason Moab is going down, he gives us specifically, is because they said the house of Judah is like all the nations. Right? So what are they saying? Aha, Judah's going down. Jerusalem's going down. They're just like all the other nations. Wait a minute. 
When they say they're just like all the other nations, what are they saying? They're saying that the God of the Jews wasn't able to protect them. Right? Because in reality, if you, if you remember back into the history, in those days, you know, these people were all defined by the strength of their gods. Right? Uh, and, you know, your false god, maybe he can help you fight against this false god. And everybody sort of had this sort of weird perception of that. And that's why God wanted the Jewish people to be blessed and to be, and to be strong and to be uh, basically beacons of his character. And so these Moabites, when the Jews are going down, they're like, yep, they're not, like, they're not unlike anybody else. They're no different. And so, again, they were very wrong in their conclusion. Be very careful about drawing conclusions about God from the wrong data points on his people. Right? Well, I don't go to church because they're full of hypocrites. You didn't tell me anything about God. You just told me about his frail people. And we're frail people. Let's not be hypocrites, right? Let's, let's rightly represent God as much as we can. But at the end of the day, we're human, right? Don't draw conclusions. Don't draw false conclusions about God based on the frailties of his people. Verse 12, we go to Edom. Thus says the Lord God. Edom, by the way, were descendants of Esau. Jacob's brother. So, you got the descendants of Lot, Moab, and Ammon. You got the descendants of Esau, Edom. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of, of Judah, by taking vengeance, by taking vengeance, and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate from Teman. Deden shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, that they may do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. So the Edomites, they're similar to Moab and Ammon in their disdain for Judah, but they acted on their attitudes. They took vengeance. Now again, we've talked about recently, there are things in life we give and take, right? We don't take offense. We, you know, we give thanks, that sort of thing, right? I refer you to the give and take book that we had out here a bit ago. But one of the things we don't take is we don't take vengeance. We don't take vengeance. What does God say about vengeance? Chapter, Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You let God deal with vengeance. You leave justice to God, and along the way, don't forget that He's merciful to you. I leave vengeance to God, and along the way, I remember that He's been merciful to me. You know, we as Christians, one of the, one of the challenges we have is that we tend to be very justice-minded, right? Like, we worship the Lord. We've got our Bible. We have a system of right and wrong. We know the Ten Commandments. You know, there's some... There's some right and wrong. There's some parameters, right? And in our minds, uh, you know, obedience is blessed and disobedience is cursed. And we have this sort of judge, justice sort of system in our minds. Is God just? God's fully just. But sometimes 
we as Christians want to sort of presume that justice on ourselves, right? Because I've got a firm sense of right and wrong. I know that what Joe over here is doing is wrong, and I feel like I am justified in taking vengeance on Joe. Well, let's say you're right. Let's say Joe's wrong. Let's say Joe deserves some punishment. That's where it stops. Let God deal with Joe. As my mother would say. Anybody know what my mother would say? She said tons of things. She said, you worry about Scott. That's pretty straight, straight up. She also told me when I was in college, in about 10 years, I'm going to get a lot smarter in your eyes. Anyway, here I am quoting her, right? <laughs> here I am quoting her. You worry about Scott. That's God's answer to vengeance. You worry about Scott. Now, you guys can all worry about Scott, too, but that's another story. How about the Philistines? Verse 15, thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully. Do we have a theme going here? And honestly, we've got the theme building here. Because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart to destroy because of the old hatred. That's underlined in my Bible. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. First of all, notice that all these groups are going to one day know that he is the Lord, right? That's his concluding statement. Notice also the Philistines were perpetual enemies of the Jews, and they were also vengeful. But God elaborates a little bit as to why they were vengeful. And it really probably applies also to the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites. They were vengeful because of what he calls old hatred. Now, what's another word that we know of in a biblical context that we would relate to old hatred? Starts with B. Rhymes with bitterness. Right? Bitterness. Bitterness is old hatred. Can I tell you this? this uh, if, you've, if you've been here more than three months, I just apologize. Because I rant on this all the time. I rant on this all the time. I probably always will rant on this. Because bitterness is, the most, is one of the most subtle sins that we can commit. Now, all sin is sin. All sin separates us from God. But different sins have different consequences. Is that fair? I mean, some sins in our modern-day context will land you in jail, right? Different sins have different consequences. Bitterness has one of the most subtle and yet one of the most destructive consequences of anything I can think of. Hebrews chapter 12, I believe, describes Esau. Esau was a man... Who, had, who was defined as bitter, right? Interestingly, we see Lot described in the New Testament as righteous. We see Esau described in the New Testament as bitter. And he calls it a root of bitterness. 
And I like that description. Do you see the root of a tree? Usually? Like, what about a huge tree? Like, you know, big oak tree this big around. Do you see the root on it? No. Is it capable of a lot? Holding up the oak tree this big around? Yeah. How does bitterness work in our lives? It's below the surface. You don't see it. You only see what comes out of it. You see what comes out of it. And I just got to be honest with you. I've seen over the years, bitterness is so destructive. I, I like God's description of it here. The old hatred. It's like it doesn't go away. If bitterness is not aggressively dealt with, it will not go away. And it just keeps manifesting. And you may not even know it's there, right? Because it's a root. It's below the surface. You may not know it's there. And then you have a conversation with that person like three years later. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That sounded like an oak tree. Right? It's bitterness. It's bitterness. Can I tell us, beware of bitterness. You know, God is going to judge the Jewish people for their idolatry. But make no mistake about it. God is going to judge the Ammonites. Because they said, na 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 when the Jewish people went down. God's going to judge the Moabites. Because they didn't think God could deliver them. God's going to judge the Edomites because they took vengeance on the Jewish people. And God is going to judge the Philistines because they were bitter. You see this? And it's in the context of warning the Jews yet in Jerusalem, be careful about that spiritual pride. Is it possible that us as Christians might have so much spiritual pride that we are bitter and maybe don't even recognize it? Is that possible? Yeah. It's possible. Beware of bitterness. Can I just tell you this? If, if there's something I could say from this, from this platform to warn God's people about, it is bitterness. Bitterness is so destructive. Bitterness is so destructive. So, the sin of the Jews was arrogant, pompous pride, thinking they were above the law. The sin of the Gentile nations was similar. But they, along the way, were bitter. They were vengeful. And for us, we need to be humble. We need to have an attitude towards others like God describes Lot. We need to recognize that God saved us and we deserved not to be saved. We don't deserve anything that God has given us. We deserve eternity in hell. And yet God saved us. So that should be what defines us. And that should be what drives our hearts and our attitudes towards others. 
And we can have the ability to set our minds on that. Even to the point that that can transform us. Right? It's a great work that God can do in our hearts. But we need to be willing. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for these words and these lessons that you gave, gave us through Ezekiel. Lord, what a difficult, difficult life he had. And yet, Lord, you used him to build us up. And so thanks for using him. Thanks for his willingness to be used. Thanks for your word. Lord, help us to walk in it. Guide us and lead us, please, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.